I joined this church in August of 1993. Now, Pastor Blake was wrong. His intentions were good, but I've not celebrated 30 years as a pastor here. It might seem that long to some, some people in the congregation, but it's been 25 years. Pastor Larry, on the other hand, has been here 31 years. We'll celebrate him tonight. We, we intended to celebrate him last year, but we had this little thing called a pandemic uh, that kept us from, uh, from recognizing him on the 30th, his 30th anniversary. All that to say, when I came to the church, as I said in the video, I moved to Louisville to work for the Defense Department. Uh, I didn't know anything about Ninth and O Baptist Church. Uh, I had begun visiting the church at the in invitation of a friend and, and uh, about a year prior to actually joining, which is kind of typical for my life. I, I'm, I'm slow to make decisions, but once I make them, you're going to have to move heaven and earth to change my mind. And so uh, I, I remember the day I walked the aisle to join the church, one of our little senior adult ladies who's still a member here uh, said out loud, well, hallelujah. And it wasn't a true, genuine hallelujah, praise the Lord. It was more like, it's about time, what's taking you so long? And so that, that's indicative of my, of my life. Um, I've seen a lot of changes in my life during that time. As I said in the video, I was a single guy when I came here uh, 28, 29 years ago. I had a lot less weight a lot more hair, and in that time here the Lord called me to full-time ministry, and so I was ordained in the church, called to serve on the church. A, a mutual friend introduced Renee and me, and so we were married in the church, and, and um, we've had two children uh, who were born and raised in this church, not literally, but as close to it as, as you can get. They've been here their entire lives, and, um, and now in less than a month, Renee and I are going to be empty nesters as both kids will now be in college. And so you should probably pray for her, uh, Renee that is, she'll have a lot more to put up with without the kids around to serve as a buffer. And just FYI, I've been told that the lady who, who fell is, is gonna be just fine. So put your mind at ease there. Um, so I've experienced a lot of changes and, and I've seen a lot of changes in the church as well. Uh, prior to moving to this property, the average age on a Sunday morning at Ninth and O Baptist Church was somewhere between 62 and 63 years old. Now, I don't know what the average age is today, but if you walk through the hallways, through the children's building and the youth, and it's very obvious that our average age is much lower than it was back then. Um, we've had a lot of wonderful people who've gone to be with the Lord. Uh, you know, personally, I think I have preached uh, at least 100 plus funerals. Uh, for people in our congregation over those years. The worship style today is much different than it was in the 90s. You can go back and Google what the 90s worship style looked like, and that was us, and uh, it's much different today. Many of the programs have changed through the years. A lot has changed about this church, but as I began to prepare this message and looking at the passage before us this morning uh, that Mindy just read, I was reminded that the things that initially caused me to fall in love with this church 28 or 29 years ago have not changed. They've not changed a, a bit. Now, Dr. Cook has been preaching through 2 Thessalonians, and, and so we're going to continue there this morning. And he finished chapter 2 a couple of weeks ago, and uh, at the end of chapter 2, uh, well, actually throughout chapter 2, the Apostle Paul has been talking with the church at Thessalonica concerning eschatology, the study of last things. He didn't call it that, but that's the proper name for it. He's describing to them what to expect and what life will be like prior to the return of Christ. 
But in chapter 3, he now turns his attention off of of the return of Christ and, and looking to that day, but also how we should live until the return of Christ. In other words, we can be so focused on the return of Christ that we, that we fail to understand how God wants us to live in anticipation of his return. Now, the church at Thessalonica is not a perfect church. There are areas where correction is still needed. In fact, if you go down to verse 6, we're not going to make it that far today, but uh, at some point, Dr. Cook will preach uh, verses 6 and following. And if you, you, you'll see in verses 6 and following um, some things where Paul corrects the church at Thessalonica, or at least certain people within that church. But today we look at verses 1 through 5, and Paul commends them in some areas uh, that in many ways shows his confidence in them But even more importantly, it shows his confidence in the Lord because it is the Lord who sustains them. It is the Lord who has helped this young church. And it's the Lord who will sustain them in the days and weeks and months ahead. And so we see in this passage a very encouraging word from the Apostle Paul. By the way, as a side note, this is one reason why I think it's preferable to preach through books of the Bible. Sometimes people want to know, why do pastors preach through books of the Bible? Well, number one, it... it, it, uh, it removes your anxiety about what you're going to preach next week. You know, it's a great big book. It shouldn't be that hard to find a passage to preach. But one of the toughest things for a pastor, uh, if you're not preaching through books of the Bible, is what I'm going to preach, what topic next week. When you preach through books of the Bible, you already know what topic. You might not like the topic. It might be difficult. It might be challenging. But you're going to know what you're going to preach. But, but another advantage, I think, is that some pastors, by their very nature, have a tendency to, to only want to correct Uh, They want their their church to do well. They want to correct their congregation, sometimes to the verge of browbeating their congregation. That's just their natural inclination. And then there are other pastors who are very pastoral, very encouraging, and so their natural inclination is to only preach that which really encourages and edifies and makes makes the church body feel good. When you preach through books, you learn to strike a better balance of that because the Bible, uh, the Scripture presents both correction and encouragement. And we need both. God included both in his word. Well, in these first five verses, Paul is encouraging and commending the Thessalonians. I was was reading John MacArthur's comments on this passage this past week, and and he had just remarked uh, how the principles in this passage applied to his church. Now, I've never been to his church. I have no doubt to, uh, I have no reason to question what he has said. I'm absolutely sure it's probably true of his church. But as I began to study this passage and think about Ninth and Old Baptist Church, there was no doubt whatsoever in my mind that the principles in this passage apply to this body of believers. So I want to spend my time this morning working through the passage, applying these principles, and I've entitled the message, Why I Thank God for Ninth and Old Baptist Church. Why I thank God for this church. And the first thing that I want you to see in our passage this morning is I thank God for your prayers of supplication. I thank God for your prayers of supplication. In verses 1 and 2, Paul writes, Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified just as it did also with you, and that we'll be rescued from perverse and evil men, for not all have faith. Now, two weeks ago, our pastor preached about Paul's prayer at the end of chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. And at the end of that message, he, he talked about the various components of prayer and he used a very common acronym that many of us have heard of. It's, it's called ACTS, A-C-T-S. And it's just an acronym that helps us to remember how we should approach the Lord in prayer. And if you recall that message, uh, the A stands for adoration. 
Adoration is praising God for who he is. When we come to the Lord in prayer, we ought to praise him for who he is. The C stands for confession. If we come to the Lord, we, we should confess our sins. Any sin that we've uh, not confessed previously, we need to confess those sins to the Lord, ask him to forgive us of those sins and to help us to abstain from those sins in the future. The T stands for thanksgiving. Uh, thanksgiving is thanking God for what he's done. Adoration is praising him for who he is. Thanksgiving is praising him for what he's done. And we have, of all people, uh, a, lot to be, uh, a lot to be thankful for. And then we get to the S. The S stands for supplication. And, and that's the component where we pray for the needs of others. And that's what Paul is requesting from this congregation in verses 1 and 2. So he ends chapter 2 by praying for the Thessalonians... And then he begins chapter 3 by asking them to return the favor. All right? And, and, you know, as a pastor, I can tell you it's an honor when people ask me, Pastor, will you pray about such and such need for me? And I want you to know to the best of our ability as the pastoral staff, we do that. We try to pray for you individually as we become aware of needs. And there's oftentimes on Monday staff meeting that a substantial a portion of our staff meeting is spent praying for the needs of this congregation. But let me just also share, it is extremely encouraging to know that you're praying for us. And I know that many of you do that. You know, two things come to my mind when I think about these verses. The first is that Paul understood his neediness. Paul understood his neediness. But the secondly is that, that Paul was confident in their willingness. Here was a man who had a tremendous pedigree. We're talking the Apostle Paul. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 5, he referred to himself someone, as someone who was circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. This guy had a list of accomplishments. He had tremendous intellect. As to the law, he says, a Pharisee. After his conversion, we know that he, that he set the world on fire with the gospel. Uh, probably the greatest missionary history, a missionary in the history of Christianity. And yet when we get to today's passage, he says, pray for us. Pray for my companions, Timothy and Silas, and pray for me. Here was a man who was not too good to ask for prayer. Here was someone who understood that his pedigree or his zeal and his intellect and his passion meant nothing for the spread of the gospel unless God intervened and worked through his life. And so he said, pray for us because he understood his neediness. But he also believed in their willingness to do that. I mean, after all, who, pray, who asks someone to pray for them knowing that they're not going to actually pray for them? No, Paul fully believed that the congregation was going to pray for them. And so he was confident of that. In fact, the word that he used actually means to, to pray continually. In other words, Paul was, was not just asking them to occasionally throw up a prayer if it, if it happened to cross their minds. He's saying, no, brothers and sisters, please pray continually. Lift us up in prayer continually. He understood that life is a battle, that he needed the prayer of God's people. I saw a quote, a quote from John Piper on social media recently that said, until we believe that life is war, we will not know what prayer is for. Well, Paul understood the truth that life is war and that he desperately needed the prayers of other believers. And, and this request for prayer from the apostle is not unique to this passage. He requested prayer in other places as well. For example, back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 25, he simply says this, Brethren, pray for us. He doesn't tell them what to pray for. He just says, pray for us. 
Now, in our passage this morning, he asked them to pray specifically for a couple of things. In verse 1, he asked them to pray that the word of the Lord will be spread uh, greatly, rapidly, and be glorified. In other words, Paul was concerned that the gospel be preached and go out unhindered. Uh, he, he was concerned that nothing would, would prevent the spread of the gospel. And he was convinced that uh, he understood th- that lives would be transformed as a result of the preaching of the gospel. That's the nature of the gospel. The gospel changes people. Do you believe that this morning, that the gospel changes people? It changes their priorities. It changes their actions. It changes their attitudes. It changes their passions. It takes those who are spiritually dead in their trespasses, and it makes them alive in Christ. And Paul said the result, the proof of that, was in the Thessalonians themselves. Because remember, this was a young congregation. The apostle had had started this church. They were not an old group of believers. They had not been Christians for very long, and yet their lives had been transformed by the gospel itself after hearing the message. And I might add, for those who are Christians this morning... We're living proof that the gospel changes people. Some of you here are not the same people you were years ago, right? The Lord has has taken uh, dead bones, so to speak, and raised up a new creation. That's what the gospel does. We're living proof that the gospel changes people. So we should be offering up prayers of supplication for others because our salvation came on the heels of someone else's faithful prayers. I would guarantee almost every one of us in this room this morning, if you're a believer, you, you, you might not know who the person is, but somebody was praying for you. I had people in my life praying for me that God would save me, and he honored those prayers. And so Paul's first request uh, is for the spread of the gospel. His second request is for those who spread it. Look again in verse 2, that we will be rescued from perverse and evil men, for not all have faith. Now, I don't believe that Paul is making this request because he wants a life of ease and and luxury. Because here's a man who suffered greatly for the gospel. Uh, He wrote much of the New Testament while under arrest. And so his was not a life of comfort and ease, but he wants to be rescued from evil men in order that the gospel continue to be proclaimed. And so he says, pray for us. Why? Because not all have faith. Now, I don't know of any pastor today who would compare themselves to the Apostle Paul. But what I will tell you is this. Every pastor I know, every pastor that I know needs and appreciates the prayers of their congregation. And as I ask you to pray for us, I would say this morning, thank you, because I know you're already doing that. I know many of you do that. I will tell you that ministry is difficult. That's not to be a whiner. Uh, because we love what we do, but ministry is hard, and I think most pastors would say it's getting harder. Ministry is difficult. The last year has been especially challenging during a pandemic, and yet I cannot tell you how many times people uh, sent text messages or emails or or phone calls or just came up and said, hey, pastor, we're we're praying for you all, and those prayers make a difference. On, On a personal note, some of you know, many of you may not know, that late last year my parents decided that they would move to Louisville uh, in February of this year, uh, they had some, some health issues, some significant health issues, and my brothers and, and I and our families are here, and so they were going to move here uh, from our hometown where they'd lived for 70 years or more, and they were going to move to Louisville to be near us and near their, their specialist. 
And so they came up for a four-day visit at Christmas time uh, with the intention of going back home and preparing to move. Well, my father, to make a long story short, was hospitalized while they were here, and it became pretty evident um, that there was no way he was going to be strong enough to go back home uh, after being discharged from the hospital. And so all that to say, he, they came up for a four-day visit and never left. And we moved him up here during that time, and thankfully there's been significant progress uh, on, on his health. But many of you have prayed for them. There's one man in this church that uh, I can just tell you, I think, I think I can honestly say every time he sees me, he says, how's your parents? Right? And I know that the reason he asked that question is because he's praying for them. What, what an encouragement. Guys, we need you to pray for us, not just for our personal needs, but we, we need you in particular to pray for us that we would preach the gospel clearly. We need you to pray for us that we would preach the gospel with compassion, but also with boldness. Listen, ladies and gentlemen, the day of cultural Christianity where people just come to church because it's good for their business contacts, those days are largely gone. We're living in a time where beliefs which have been a part of Orthodox Christianity for 2,000 plus years are suddenly becoming considered extreme as if they're some sort of a novel doctrine. Listen, we don't believe, we're not believing anything today that the Apostle Paul didn't believe. It's just that our culture has rejected that truth. And so it seems extreme to them today. Now, don't misunderstand, there are still people who are very receptive to the gospel. But the number of people in our culture who are openly hostile to the gospel is on the rise in our country. And unless God sends an awakening, that, that hostility will continue to escalate. And we need your prayers that we will not waver. One of the most challenging things for me personally, after I preach, I, I then beat myself up over how I said this, or maybe I should have said that. And, and one of my greatest concerns is not wanting to be personally offensive. I don't want to personally offend someone. But at the same time, I live with the reality that the gospel itself is offensive. The gospel itself is a stumbling block to many, the Bible says. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1.18 that the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. That means there will be those who do not like the message we preach. It's too exclusive. Pastor, you're saying that Jesus is the only way to heaven? That's absolutely what I'm saying, unashamedly. Because that's what the gospel said. There will be people who don't like what we preach because it calls people to repent from their sin rather than to be identified by their sin. But that same message is the gospel that sets captives free. And so thank you for praying for us. The second thing I want you to see this morning is that I thank God for your progress in sanctification. I thank God for your prayers of supplication. I thank him for your progress in sanctification. We see that in the next three verses. If supplication is what you pray, sanctification is how you live. It, it's, it's, it's how you walk with the Lord. It's the growth process of a new believer, a new baby in Christ, as that believer begins to grow and mature in his or her faith to be more like Christ in your thoughts and in your actions and in your deeds. That's what it means to, to, to follow the path of sanctification. It's that process of becoming more like Jesus. And Paul gives us several components of sanctification in this passage. Uh, he tells us in verse 3 that a Christian who is walking with the Lord will trust in the faithfulness of God. Look in verse 3. But the Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. I believe the Thessalonians believed that truth. 
Now, it's interesting. Verse 2 ends with Paul requesting prayer to be rescued from evil men. Why? Because he said, because not all have faith. And then in chapter, uh, verse 3, he immediately contrasts those people who have no faith in verse 2 with our God in verse 3, who is always faithful. He is completely faithful. He's faithful in your salvation. What does Romans 10, 9 teach us? That if you will confess in your heart uh, the Lord Jesus, or confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, what? What will happen? You will be saved. He goes on in chapter 10, verse uh, 13, and says, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Not may be saved, not hopefully will be saved, not perhaps will be saved, but will be saved. We can take it to the bank because he's a faithful God. When we do uh, what he tells us to do, we can trust him at his word to do exactly what he promised. But after we're saved, we still continue to sin, don't we? We're not completely sanctified. We We don't become sinless until we stand at his throne. But he continues to love us, doesn't he? He's faithful. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He doesn't hold his love over our heads uh, like we're being held hostage uh, as, uh, from someone who is a, has a conditional type of love. He doesn't say, Jeff, you need to do better or I'll stop loving you. No. He says, Jeff, there's nothing you can do that's good that will cause me to love you any more. There's nothing that you can do that is bad that will cause me to love you any less. I just love you. I love you because it's my nature, not because of who you are, but because of who I am. He's faithful in our sanctification. He's faithful when we're hurting. Uh, when we're hurting, when uh, in, a, in a room this size, there are surely people who, who, who are hurting today. Perhaps your world feels like it is falling apart. Let me just encourage you this morning. He's still faithful. He's still faithful. It doesn't mean that we don't experience troubles. It doesn't mean that we don't experience terrible heartache in this world. But it does mean that he is faithful to strengthen and protect us from the evil one. That's what Paul says in verse 3. He will not abandon us. And even through the struggles of this world, those things are being used by God, our faithful Lord, to accomplish his will. There are times in this church where as a pastor I am challenged and sometimes convicted by the trust of God's people in the Lord's faithfulness. That, that truth is not exclusive to our senior adults, but it is especially true of so many of our senior adults. That I have seen them trust the Lord through so, uh, some very difficult times. It doesn't happen by accident. It happens, it happens because they've witnessed God's faithfulness through the years to the point to the point of believing if I trusted God back then, if he was faithful back then, he'll be faithful today. It, it comes with people who have spent years walking with the Lord. Robbie Gallaty recently said, he said, your trust in God is connected to your time with God. More time equals more trust. More time equals more trust. So if you're here this morning and you're struggling with trusting the Lord, one question to answer is, how much time am I spending with him? Because I will tell you, the more time I spend with the Lord, the easier it is to trust him because I recall all the other times that he's been faithful. And it encourages me to keep trusting. But ultimately, if I trust him, I'll want to obey him. 
That's the second component here. Not only do we need to trust in the faithfulness of God, but we also need to obey the word of God. Look in verse 4. We have confidence in the Lord concerning you that you are doing and will continue to do what we command. Now in verse 3, Paul verbalized his confidence in the Lord to strengthen and to protect the Thessalonians from Satan. And now in verse 4, he expresses confidence in the Lord that the Thessalonians will do what the Lord has commanded them to do. And so here we get a glimpse between this balance between God's sovereignty and our human responsibility. Because on the one hand, we cannot please him, we cannot serve him faithfully without his assistance. God is sovereign. Uh, We need his faithful work in our lives. And yet on the other hand, trusting in God's faithfulness does not negate our responsibility to obey his word. And let me just say that obeying the word of God begins with what? Believing the word of God. I don't see a lot of point in obeying something that you don't believe. I thank God that for almost 105 years, this church has been a church which has stood for the infallibility and inerrancy of God's Word. We believe this is God's Word. Sometimes theological liberals will say the Bible contains, God, contains truth. No. The Bible does not contain truth. The Bible is truth. Because if it just contains truth, then the implication is that there are things in here that are not true, and then we're left in the quandary of having to decide which parts to trust and which parts not to trust. And what it leads is to a slippery slope to nowhere. Look back in 1 Thessalonians. Look back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse, uh, verse 13. Paul writes this, For this reason we also constantly thank God that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, listen, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. This church has a rich history of believing the word of God. I, uh, my mind goes back to stories I've heard from the 9th and O prior to my arrival by about a decade or so. Our Southern Baptist Convention was, was pretty liberal theologically in those days. This church was not. And so this church took a stand for the Word of God. Our seminaries, uh, my, our seminary today is very solid, but that, the same could not be said back in those days. Uh, in those days, Dr. Laverne Butler was, was a pastor at Ninth and O. And, and he took a stand for the Word of God regardless of what was said at 2825 Lexington Road. And There were people there who graduated at times with degrees that were supposed to uh, help them in preaching the gospel, and instead they would graduate with their faith in tatters because of the nonsense they were hearing in some of the classrooms. Well, Ninth and O took a stand for the Word of God, and apparently Dr. Butler had angered one of the professors by something that he had said. And so on a particular Sunday night, I'm told that this this individual, this professor, along with an entourage of students, believe this or not, it's true, showed up at the Sunday evening service and demanded to speak. Now that takes a little bit of nerve to do that. I can't imagine having the nerve to do that, but this gentleman did. And I honestly don't know what Dr. Butler was thinking when he said this, but the Lord must have been guiding him because Dr. Butler said, if you'll shake my hand, I'll I'll allow you to speak. 
Well, the professor refused to shake his hand. So the deacons threw them out. We have deacons today who were deacons during that time. And I'm thankful for them. And if the same thing happened today, the same result would occur. I feel, I feel confident. We have been and are a church that believes the word of God. But let me just say to you, congregation, that it's possible to have an intellectual belief in something and not live according to that belief. James says the demons believe and they shudder. But let me just say this, a genuine belief, a genuine faith in God's word and in the gospel will include a desire to actually obey the word of God. There will be a desire to live out the gospel in our daily lives. James says that a faith without works is a dead faith. And so if we're genuinely saved, uh, this, this thought of, uh, yes, I trusted Jesus, but I have no desire to obey Jesus. I have no desire to follow Jesus. I have no desire to spend time with Jesus. I don't have a desire to spend time with God's people who belong to Jesus. Folks, if that's your belief, you should check your doctrine. You should check your heart. That's not the kind of saving faith that the Bible refers to. Jesus said if we love him, we're to do what? Keep his commandments. Back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 12, Paul says that we should walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. That's our obedience. That's where our desire to obey his word comes into play. And I have seen through the years a genuine desire in this church to actually live out what the Bible says. Now, we're not a perfect congregation. Neither were the Thessalonians. And as I said earlier, Paul, in the next passage, will correct some of those individuals who are not doing what the Lord had instructed them to do. But it did not change his position that, that um, as a whole, the people were, were doing what they needed to do based on the authority of the word that had been given to them. These people were trying to live in obedience. And, and let me just tell you, as a pastor, when you can say that about your congregation, that makes for a happy pastor's heart. It, it really does, because I, I sometimes hear nightmare stories from struggling pastors because they're serving in places where so many members of their congregation, their number one priority is to get what they want to get and to do what they want to do, regardless of what the Bible says. Ninth and O, thank you for believing the Word of God. Thank you for standing on the Word of God. Thank you for seeking to obey the Word of God. That's the second thing that Paul tells us as part of that sanctification process. The, the final thing that he shares is that growing in sanctification means it will mature in the love of God. We'll mature in the love of God. Look in verse 5. May the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. So while Paul asks for their prayers in verses 1 and 2, in verse 5, he offers a prayer on their behalf. And what he wants most is for the Lord to direct their hearts into the love of God. The heart is the center of our being. It's, it's who we are. It's the center of our mind and our emotions and our will. He wants their heart to experience a deep understanding of the love of God. Now this phrase, the love of God, can be a little confusing to interpret because there's a couple of potential meanings. Does he mean by this phrase, the love of God... Is he referring to God's love for us, or is he referring to our love for God? At different times, it means different things. The original language here doesn't make it clear. And, and I believe that's because it's, that the fact that it's unclear, we're safe in saying that Paul is saying both of these things. 
In other words, let me say it like this. When I consider how God loves me, not because of my goodness, but in spite of my fallenness, it should cause me to love him more fully. Think about how God loves us. One of the great passages in the New Testament is Romans chapter 8, verses 35 to 39. Let me, let me read that passage for us this morning. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And the more we understand how God loves us, the more we should love him. And the result is a believer who is growing and maturing in their love for the Lord and in their love for others. After all, Jesus said the two greatest commandments were what? To love God and to love our neighbors as ourselves. I can tell you that this is a loving congregation. I believe that it is a church that is growing and maturing in its understanding of God's love. And as a result, it's a congregation that is growing in its love for God and for others. Each year, Dr. Cook and I and our wives and other messengers from this church have the responsibility of attending the Southern Baptist Convention. Our business meetings, if you've been in our business meetings, they're usually 30 minutes top. I think we have, we have one this Wednesday night. Our business meetings are 30 minutes. Imagine sitting in a business meeting all day long for two solid days in a Baptist business meeting with thousands of people. Oh, it's a hoot. It's a real, it's a real joy. But one of the things that we really enjoy doing, other than Dr. Cook and I eating a lot of ice cream while our wives scold us, one of the things that we really enjoy doing is spending time with, with dozens of former members who are now pastoring churches all around the country. And let me just say something that comes back time and time again is their love and their admiration and their, love and their respect for this church is absolutely amazing. And it's because how you, of how you've loved them while they were here. They'll sometimes post things on social media with a hashtag of NAOBC for life. They love this church and it's because of you. They love this church because how you've treated them and loved them and encouraged them. This is a faithful congregation. This is not a perfect congregation, but I thank God for you. I believe every pastor on our staff would say we thank God for this congregation. I look at the faithfulness and financial giving from so many people, and I don't have any idea who gives how much. I, let, me, let me be very clear on that. But I know that there are faithful people in this church who give sacrificially. Why? Because uh, the gospel, uh, so the gospel can be spread around this city and around our world. That is maturing in our love for God and others. And so I can speak for all of our staff when I say thank you. Well, it could be that you're here today and you're looking for a church home. I couldn't have given you a better spill, at least from my vantage point, as to why you might consider membership at Ninth and Old Baptist Church. But at the conclusion of our service, if you exit uh, the doors to my left out in that lobby, there'll be a guest table out there, and there'll be people working that table, and they would love to share with you how you can be a member of Ninth and O. It could be that you're here this morning, you're saying, Pastor, 
I, I agree with the things you've said about our church, but those things aren't necessarily true of my life right now. I'm not walking closely with the Lord. I'm not obeying the Lord. Maybe you just need someone to pray with you. Any of our pastors are happy to do that, do that this morning. Their people at the guest table are more than happy to do that this morning. It could be that you're here today and all this talk about the love of God means very little to you because you don't love God. You don't have a relationship with Christ, but you'd like to know what it means to have a, a relationship with Jesus Christ and know that he is your Savior and your Lord and to know where you're going to spend eternity. Someone at that table would love to share with you from God's word how you can have eternal life. I'm going to ask you to stand, if you would, and join me in prayer. Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for this congregation. Thank you that you have sustained this church, Father. This is your church, and we give you praise for that. We ask that you would continue to bless this congregation, Lord, that we would be a people of your word, that we would take seriously your commands, and that we would love others sacrificially. Father, if there are those here today who are not walking with you, I pray that you would draw them close to yourself. If there are those here who do not know you today, I pray that today would be the day that you would save them, that you would change them from the inside out, that you would give them the assurance of eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.